All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the name of Dr. C. Everett Koop, who is uh, now our uh, Surgeon General. Some uh, years ago, Dr. Koop's son, David, was rock climbing in the mountains of New Hampshire and was making a uh, particularly difficult ascent and grasped a rock with one hand and it broke loose from the face and he fell about 700 feet to the valley floor below and was killed. I remember when I read that thinking how what a terrible irony uh, that was because Dr. Koop, who is a pediatric surgeon, has saved the lives of thousands of children and yet he couldn't save his own son. That afternoon, when Dr. and Mrs. Coop went into David's room, they found his Bible open on the bedstand next to, uh, next to his bed. And it was marked in such a way that they realized he had been reading the book of Jude and uh, had marked uh, verse 24, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before him in glory. And they realized that the Lord very well could have kept uh, David from falling physically as, as well as spiritually, but he, he hadn't. And the question that comes to mind is why? Why was David Koop not spared? He was a young man who had a particularly effective ministry with his contemporaries. He was a Christian who was able to explain the gospel very clearly to, uh, to his peers. Why had, had he been taken? One of the great mysteries of life. While I was on the staff at Peninsula Bible Church in, in Palo Alto, uh, three of our staff members lost children in the, in the years that I was there. And in one case, two children were lost to one family through a rare disease. They were told uh, that there was a one in one million chance that the second child would die of the same uh, disorder, but she did. And a little closer to home, just this past week, uh, Robert Waringa, who's Peter Waringa's father or brother, was killed in an automobile accident in Southern California. Peter, you know, is our pastor up in Stanley, and Peter and Case have been serving up there faithfully over this past summer. And uh, his brother was killed in a head-on collision on a freeway in Southern California. Or even closer to home, I was at the hospital again this last week, and and saw Ben Kovalt and uh, looked at that helpless, hopeless little boy and thought the same thing. Why? Why do these things happen? Why is it that sometimes we pray and God heals and another time we pray and He doesn't heal? We pray that God will protect us and He does and then we pray that God will protect someone else and He doesn't. How, how do we explain these strange reversals in life? Well, the, the passage that we want to look at this morning, I believe, will give us some help. It's Acts chapter 12. Another of these interesting historical accounts by uh, our author, Luke. In this uh, chapter, he describes first the death of the apostle James. Uh, he's murdered by Herod. And uh, the death of Herod later in the chapter and in between the story of Peter's miraculous uh, escape from prison. Let's begin reading with verse 1. It was at this time that King Herod laid violent hands on some of the church members, James, uh, John's brother, he executed with a sword. 
And when he found this action pleased the Jews, he went on to arrest Peter as well. The King Herod, who's, uh, who appears in this story, is not Herod the Great, the one who murdered the innocents in Bethlehem, but his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, who was responsible in some measure for uh, Jesus' death. And here he triumphs over James, the brother of John. This is James, who was the apostle, the brother of the apostle John, not the James who wrote our New Testament book of James. He was uh, one of the twelve, and uh, he was one of whom Jesus uh, predicted that he would die a violent death. Uh, James himself had a fling at politics at one point in his life. He, he asked if he could be seated on Jesus' right and left side. And Jesus said, it's, that's not mine to give, but what I can promise is that you will drink the cup that I drink. And uh, he was referring to his martyrdom. John was the first of the apostles to be martyred, and John was the last, interestingly enough. The death of these two brothers bracket the uh, deaths of all of the other uh, other apostles. And here this, uh, this impressive young man has his life taken away from him, right in the prime of his life, by this evil, wicked man, Herod. How can we explain this fact? Certainly the church prayed when he was in prison, but uh, he was not delivered. Luke goes on to uh, report that it was during the days of unleavened bread that he actually made the arrest, that is, the arrest of Peter. He put Peter in prison with no less than four platoons of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was closely guarded in the prison while the church prayed to God earnestly on his behalf. Uh, this was the uh, Passover season. The uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is the feast that that accompanies the Passover some 12 to 13 years before. Jesus had been executed during the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Herod, who was something of a political animal, he really was only concerned about his position in the Roman Empire, out of a desire to please the Jews, imprisoned Peter as well during this, during this time. And uh, placed over him a guard of four squads of four men. Apparently he thought the Christians would try to uh, break Peter out of jail. But uh, the church had another strategy, as Luke tells us. They prayed to God earnestly on his behalf. On the night before Herod intended to bring him out, that is, to bring him out for execution, Peter was asleep between two soldiers, chained with double chains, while guards maintained a strict watch in the doorway of the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up! His chains fell away from his hands, and the angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. And he did so. Then the angel continued, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. So Peter followed him out, not knowing whether what the angel was doing were real. Indeed, he felt he must be taking part in a vision. He thought he was dreaming, walking in his sleep, and uh, he didn't wake up for some time. They passed right through the first gate that led him into the city. This opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and had passed along one street when the angel suddenly vanished from Peter's sight. Then Peter came to himself. He seemed to shake himself and wake up and realize that it was real. It had really happened. 
Peter's courage is amazing. Uh, he was asleep on the night before his uh, execution. Remember, the Lord had told him that he also would meet a violent death, and he probably thought this was it. The jig is up. This is the night when I meet my death. But uh, he uh, went to sleep and was awakened out of his sleep by the angel, passed out of the prison miraculously. And uh, Luke tells us he came to himself, he woke up, realized that it had really happened, and said aloud, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the power of Herod and from all that the Jewish people are expecting. Here's a miraculous deliverance from prison that even Peter hadn't anticipated. As the truth broke upon him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, surnamed Mark, where many were gathered together in prayer. This is probably the upper room. It was Mary's home. He knocked at the door, and a young maid called Rhoda came to answer it, but on recognizing Peter's voice, failed to open the door from sheer joy. Instead, she ran inside and reported that Peter was standing on the doorstep. At this, they said to her, you must be mad. Their faith, their prayer had about as much conviction as ours does at this point. Um... I'm sure they were somewhat disillusioned by James' death. They had prayed earnestly for James, and it would seem that God had not answered their prayer. Now they prayed earnestly, and he answered their prayer, and they were quite surprised. But she insisted that it was true, then they said, then it is his angel. But Peter continued to stand there knocking on the door. Real note of humor here, I think. This young lady was so, uh, so surprised she forgot to open the door. Peter was standing outside knocking waiting for them to let him in. And when they opened the door and recognized him, they were simply amazed. Peter, however, made a gesture to them to stop talking while he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Then he said, Go and tell James and the other brothers what has happened. Now, this is the James who was Jesus' half-brother who did write the book that we have in the New Testament. And apparently he was in another part of the city with another group of believers Peter tells them to go notify James that he had escaped, and after this he left them and went on to another place. He went underground, and apparently he was so successful, no one knows where he went. We don't know to this day where he went, except much later he turns up in Rome where he, he was executed. A number of people have pointed out that this uh, account has many marks of an eyewitness uh, account. The fact that he motioned with his hand and the humorous incident is being left out in the street while Rhoda ran in to announce his, uh, his presence, indicate that someone was on the inside of the room who was Luke's informant. It may have been Mark or it may have been Rhoda, the maid, but Luke evidently got his information from someone who was a first-hand witness. Peter really did break out of that prison. He really did turn up on the steps of the upper room, and then he escaped with his life. And again, we say, why? Does God know what he's doing? James meets his death. Peter escapes. It all seems irregular and capricious and God acting in ways that we certainly can't understand. Well, the story goes on in verse 18. When morning came, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as, as to what could have happened to Peter. The soldiers woke up. Peter was gone. When Herod had had a search put out for him without success, he cross-examined the guards and then ordered their execution. Another insight into Herod's uh, cruelty, it was Roman law that uh, a Roman soldier who permitted his charge to escape 
was put to death, but uh, Herod was king of the Jews, and he was not bound by Roman law. And that normally wasn't what happened in, in uh, Judea. But Herod was uh, insane in his rage, his political ambition, and he put the guards to death. Now, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is verse 20. They approached him in a body, and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they begged him for peace. They were forced to do this because their country's food supply was dependent on the king's domain. This uh, fact went way back into Israel's history. From the time of Solomon, uh, the kingdom of Judah had supplied the, the people of Tyre with food. But now uh, uh, they're embargoed. They can't get any supplies. They're beginning to run out of uh, food. And so they appeal through Blastus, Herod's treasurer, and uh, sue for peace. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the public throne, and made a speech to them. Josephus, a Jewish writer who was a contemporary of Herod's, who, who may have even been there and seen these proceedings, tells us that he was wearing a, a beautiful silver robe, you know, silver threads, and the sun shone on it, and they were so impressed, and there were also a bunch of flatterers, that they cried out, He's a god and not a man. And uh, Herod accepted their adulation. At this, the people kept shouting, This is a god speaking, not a mere man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he get, did not give God the glory. And in fearful internal agony he died if you're reading out of the New American Standard it says he was eaten of worms and he died it's a grotesque sort of description we were talking about this passage in our staff meeting this past week and Chris Riddell said that as a child he remembers having this passage read to him in Sunday school and he envisioned in his mind an army of savage huge worms attacking Herod and, and eating him maybe they were tomato worms uh, we were thinking about it, uh, entitling the sermon The Attack of the Killer Worms, but uh, decided better spared you from that. This apparently is an idiom. It's, it's found in a number of other ancient writers for some kind of internal uh, disorder that creates a great deal of distress. And you look at the story and you say, what in the world is going on here? Peter escapes. Herod is slain. In the first instance, James is slain. Herod gets home free. How do you understand these things? Does God act in supernatural ways to deliver? Yes, He does. Does He still do so today? Yes, He does. Do we believe in miracles? Absolutely. Just this past week, I found a story uh, of an early missionary to Tibet... And it's a striking example of uh, this sort of deliverance. His name is Sundar Singh. Uh, let, me, let me read the account. By order of the chief lama of a certain Tibetan community, Sundar Singh was thrown into a dry well, the lid of which was securely locked. Here he was left to die like many others whose bones lay at the bottom of the well. On the third night, when he had been crying to God in prayer, he heard someone unlocking the lid of the well and removing it. Then a voice spoke, telling him to take hold of the rope that was being lured. He did so and was glad to find a loop at the bottom of the rope in which he could place his foot, for his right arm had been injured. 
He was then drawn up. The lid was replaced and locked, but when he looked around to thank his rescuer, he could find no trace of him. The fresh air revived him, and his injured arm felt better. So when morning came, he returned to the city where he had been arrested and resumed preaching. News was brought to the Lama that the man who had been thrown into the execution well for preaching had been liberated and was preaching again. Sundar Singh was brought before him and questioned and told the story of his release. The Lama declared that someone must have got hold of the key and let him out. But when search was made for the key, it was, a found, it was found attached to the Lama's own girdle. Now, there's a modern-day uh, equivalent, 19th-century equivalent, of the sort of thing that we see described here in the book of, book of Acts. Now, how, how, how do we understand this sort of thing? Does God know what he's doing? Well, yes, he does. Obviously, he does. And is there an explanation for this sort of phenomenon? Yes, there is. We have to go to other places in the Bible to find it, but Scripture tells us that uh, we are indeed actors on a stage. The, uh, the real action is behind the scenes. There's a spiritual warfare going on, and, and we're simply the, the puppets, if you please, out on the stage. And behind the scenes, there is a master puppeteer who's manipulating things for his own advantage. And it's Satan. He's the God of this world, Scripture tells us. Uh, he's the, the whole world, John says, lies in the lap of the evil one. He's running this world right now under God's permission, with God's permission. But Satan is the God of this world. Scripture tells us that he is a terrible, evil, malevolent foe. He's a hostile enemy of mankind. He wants to blight and ruin and kill and destroy and hurt and maim and bring gloom and sadness and darkness and violence and tragedy to our lives. He hates us. I was in a bank the other day and I uh, noticed that the teller had an onclus around her neck, the Egyptian sign, which today is the sign of demon worship. And... Uh, I asked her if she knew the meaning behind that symbol. She said, uh, yes. And I said, oh, I said, are you a Satan worshiper? And she t turned white and her eyes got about that big around. She said, no. And I said, well, that's, uh, that's the symbol of Satan worship today. I thought perhaps you should know that. And believe me, he's no friend of ours. He hates us. Now, Jesus said he's a liar and a murderer. His strategy is to deceive. His objective is to destroy. And he wants to murder and kill and hurt and blight the quality of, of human life. He wants to get back at God. He was an angel who fell. He's a created being. And we need to keep that in mind. We Christians are not dualists. That is, we don't believe in two equal and opposite powers. God is the power in the universe, the ultimate power. Satan is a mere creature, but he's an evil, inhuman, inhumane uh, individual. I, that struck me last week while I was standing by, uh, by Ben Koval's bed, and I was just, just overcome with anger that Satan would want to destroy a, an innocent child like that. It wasn't God who did that to Ben or to Bob Waringa. It was Satan. God has to accept responsibility for everything that takes place in the world, but 
But it's Satan who does those, those awful things. He's responsible for all the sorrow and sadness and hurt in this world, ultimately. Now, if you want to know how this works, there's a beautiful illustration of it in the book of Job. Um, there was a day, Job, the author of Job tells us, when the sons of God appeared before God. The sons of God are angels in that story. And one of them, Satan, throws down a challenge to God. And he says, you blight Job's life and he'll curse you to your face. Sure he loves you and trusts you. Who wouldn't? Look at he has a He's wealthy and healthy. And he has beautiful children. He's happily married. Who wouldn't trust you in an environment like that? God says, all right, we'll see. So he, as Job puts it, removed the hedge. Removed the protective barriers around Job so that Satan could have his day. And he brought a number of natural disasters, earthquake, and lightning, Sabian, uh, Arab people swept across from the Arabian desert, decimated his family. Job was left with nothing except his wife. And as you know, that wasn't a particularly good deal. In that particular case. <clears throat> just in his case. And Job says, though he slay me, I will trust him. He counted on God in the darkness and in the silence. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know anything about that heavenly scene. He never did understand what was going on. He just trusted God in his pain. And he loved him to the end. His friends came along, and, and would-be friends came along, and they said, Job, we know what's wrong. You're a sinner. You're being punished for your sin. And Job argues very persuasively, though a little bit self-righteously, that no, no, that couldn't be true. I haven't sinned enough to deserve this. I'm not that big a sinner. And uh, he, the debate ends in a deadlock. And then his fourth friend, Elihu, shows up and he says, no, Job, suffering is educational. We grow through it. Elihu had some truth in his speech, but uh, we never know if it was particularly true in Job's case because God interrupted him, cut him off. He said, who is this that dar darkens counsel with words? Who is this that's fogging the scene? You don't understand. And he invites uh, Job to look at the uh, snowflake and the crocodile. And he, he says, Job, if you can understand the... In 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 the uh, my plan, intricacies, that's the word I was trying to say, intricacies, of my plan in nature, then you can understand the intricacies of my plan in history. And Job says, I can't. I don't understand. But I'll trust you. And at the end of Job's days, he never knew what was going on. He didn't understand all of the pain, the tragedy that struck him. But we know because we read the book. In the, in the spiritual realm, there was this great cosmic, titanic struggle going on between God and Satan. And I believe it is still going on. Satan still confronts God with that basic argument. God, you take away three children from one man and he will curse you to your face. And God says, no. No, what happened? Back in... 1976. And that man is still trusting me and believing me. 
Or he says, you, you take away a woman's husband and leave her three children to raise. And she'll curse you. She'll stop trusting you. And God says, no, no, it happened. It happened in uh, 1978. And that woman not only is going on with three children, but she has just taken four more into her house. And she's counting on me. She isn't bitter or resentful. And that's the way it goes. And that's what we have to remember. We don't always understand what God is doing. Very often, the, the real struggle is not what's happening in our time and space, but it's happening in, in the spiritual realm. This great struggle is going on where God is being vindicated. And I don't thoroughly understand why it has to happen. But it's clearly revealed in Scripture that it's happening. We may never see the results of our struggle, our suffering, and our pain. We may never see the victory from it. We may feel that we have a very small and insignificant part to play in the scheme of things down here. But we're a part of that great struggle that's going on in the heavenly realm. And I think that's what was happening in the passage that we read in, in Acts 12. We don't understand why James was taken. I don't understand why Ben Cobalt is, uh, is maimed. We can't understand those things. But the real question is, will we go on trusting God and counting on Him and believing Him in the silence and in the darkness? Will we, will we love Him even if we don't see the results? Now, I draw three conclusions from, uh, from this principle. The first is that God does not need to prove Himself. We think he does. We think that his name will be defamed if he somehow does not establish without question that he is the sovereign God of the universe and he's taking all of these things and making something out of them. He doesn't have to prove himself. That's the sort of temptation that Jesus faced when he was on the cross. The crowd at the foot of the cross said, If you're the Son of God, then come down from the, from the cross. And, and the Lord could have. He could have called to his side a legion of angels and taken himself down from, from the cross. But that proof would have proved to be a gigantic failure. No, God doesn't need to prove himself. He's not that kind of God. We don't need those sort of proofs. Nor do we need to see immediately the results of our suffering. We're attuned to thinking, uh, you know, yes, we, someone suffered here, but look at the results. This man died, but that person became a Christian because of it. But we don't need to even see that sort of cause and effect relationship to believe that, that God is good. Uh, Chris Riddell handed on to me this past week the latest edition of Through Gates of Splendor, uh, written, as you know, by Elizabeth Elliot, who is the wife of one of the men, Jim Elliot, who was killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador back in 1957. It's the 25th anniversary of that, of that uh, massacre. These five young men went into the Akas. They knew they were a headhunting tribe. They knew that it was a dangerous uh, sort of venture, but they went counting on God. To, there were thousands of Christians all over the world praying for them, and, and they were killed. All five of them were, as you know. And we're accustomed to thinking because of uh, the reports that came out in Life magazine and other, other, uh, other pieces of literature that the Akas uh, were converted, and that's true. They were, and they went all over... Uh, that part of Ecuador preaching the gospel, and that's true. 
They were. They did. But Elizabeth Elliot, in her epilogue, makes a very interesting statement. She says that things are not all that good in Land and never were. That almost from the very beginning there were struggles and the whole tribe did not turn to the Lord. There were some problems with the missionaries who went in to try to work together. They found it difficult to mesh. Things just didn't work out well. And though there was some impact upon the surrounding community, it wasn't nearly as great as we were led to believe by the more popular reports. But that's all right, because we don't need to see the results. We just know that the results are there. They may not even be here. We may never see the results in our life and in our time, but we know that God is good. We can trust Him in the darkness with our lives, no matter how much hurt we experience. Now, the third thing that this does for me is change my view of prayer. It teaches me to pray in Jesus' name. God is not a celestial vending machine in which we pop a prayer and out comes an answer. It's not the way it works. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray as Jesus prayed, pray with his authority, pray in line with heavenly policy. Uh, I have the privilege of signing checks on our account here in, at Cold Church. Uh, once the elders hear that, I, that privilege may be withdrawn, but I do. And uh, I could, if I wanted to, go down to the bank and draw out all the money in our account. And suppose I were to show up at uh, First National with my uh, Cole Community Church check, and I want to buy a new graphite fishing rod, so uh, I write a check for $300. Uh, the teller wouldn't know. She would, she would uh, give me the money. But somewhere down the line, I would be stopped because I'm not cashing checks according to company policy. That's a purely selfish request. Now, the same thing is true of prayer. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to God's will, in God's way. And that's why Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, that's the way we have to pray. For Ben, for any other set of circumstances. It may be God's will for us to go through unchanging circumstances equipped with His power to cope and never see the results of our suffering except that God strengthened us through it. If that's His will. It may be God's will to deliver us. But it may not be. It all depends upon God. It's all according to His will. And you see, this really does change the way we, we approach God in every circumstance of life. We just have to trust Him. We don't need to see. Some of you are praying, have been praying for a long time for a mate. It's hard to go through life without a partner, and particularly if you have children. And you say, God, give me a partner, give me a husband. Or give me a wife. Or give me a husband who loves me. Or a wife who cares about me. And uh, it may be that God will give you a partner. That may be his will. But it may be that God wants you to remain single for the end of, to the end of your life and raise those children by yourself or without the support and help of a husband. That may well be his will. 
There are no guarantees in this life except that God will give you the grace to face anything that you have to face. It may be that Satan is saying, do you see that woman or that man? If you cause them, God, to go through life without a partner, they'll get bitter and resentful and uh, curse you to your face. And God says, no, no, they won't. Because I can fill them and flood them with my power and give them whatever they need to make it through life. And the Scripture tells us that time, the time is coming when the accuser of the brethren will be cast down. That's in Revelation 12. It's clear that one of these days he's going to set everything right. But in the meantime, we have the opportunity to defeat, to defeat Satan in our unchanged circumstances. In your discouragement, in your hospital bed, in your wheelchair, with your kids, with your messy house, without a husband, without a wife. In your monotonous, boring, unchanging circumstances, or in the changing circumstances of your life that, that bewilder you. We have an opportunity to be part of this great spiritual conflict, not when it's all over, but right now. Let's ask God to give us the grace to face whatever we have to face this week. Let's stand, shall we? Father, all of us um, have dreams of an untroubled existence, of a cottage someplace or a cabin where we're we can live uh, unruffled lives, free from stress and, and trial and distress. But we know that's, uh, that's merely a dream. It's an illusion. And life is not like that. We live in an evil, disordered world. And the prince of this world is at work to wreak all the havoc that he, that he possibly can. And we also realize that it is not necessarily your will at this point in time to change things for our benefit and make everything right. We know that's coming, and we look forward to that time. But in the meantime, Lord, we thank you that we can trust you and love you with our unchanged circumstances, with things as they are now, and trust you in reality. Believe you. Count on you. We thank you that you do not leave us orphans. That you're a Father who's, who's with us and in us and available to us to face anything that we have to face so that we can demonstrate to principalities and, and powers that you are indeed a great and magnificent God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.